0: Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything foreign policy has to offer.
1: Discover more about tradition, ideology, Marxism and culture at wwwroutledgecom forward slash philosophy. The modern world teaches us to prize innovation above almost all else. But does this overlook the importance of our past? This week, one of Britain's most influential cultural critics, Terry Eagleton, discusses whether it's a mistake to be held captive by the promise of the new.
2: A well-known modern figure once remarked that those of our kind have always lived in tradition. Who was it? Duke of Edinburgh? Black Rod? An 87-year-old member of a Scottish golf club? No, it was Leon Trotsky, in fact, in his book Literature and Revolution. Isn't that a surprise? Not all traditions, in other words, are conservative. Those leftists who are contemptuous of tradition, in a knee-jerk kind of way simply succeed in surrendering a vital resource to their adversaries. The fact is, surely, that any society which only has its contemporary experience to live by is poor indeed. And that surely is becoming increasingly the case in our own time, where the past has been reduced to spectacle, packaged heritage, consumable commodity, or recyclable style i happen to live not far from the giant's causeway in ireland and nowadays you can enjoy something called the giant's causeway experience i just feel so sorry for all those millions of tourists who visited the giant's causeway but never had the experience you know. <laughs> my favorite remark incidentally about going to the giant's causeway was made by samuel johnson One of my favourite authors who, when asked, is the Giant's causeway worth seeing, he said, worth seeing, sir, not worth going to see. (laughs) I mean, some traditions are life-yielding, some are stifling, even lethal, and some are both at the same time. It's well known, for example, that Karl Marx is a stern critic of capitalism, but it's much less well known, isn't it, that he's also a fervent admirer. Of it. In fact, the Communist Manifesto, the single most influential document of 19th century Europe, is embarrassingly effusive in its praise for the middle classes, the single most revolutionary force in history, Marx says, to whom we owe liberalism, feminism, civil rights, enormous prosperity, in contrast to what went before. Modern democracy a magnificent culture, as well as small children working for 14 hours a day in cotton mills, imperialist war, genocide, starvation, and so on. The point being, not just that some traditions are life-giving and some are throttling and stifling, but I say some, for Marx, both is true at the same time, inseparably, of the history that we inherit. So that the only true answer for mark to the question is capitalism good or bad is an unequivocal yes (laughs) until very recently the vast majority of men and women who have inhabited the planet have lived in tradition what they did roughly speaking was what their ancestors did and the idea of the new That they could have done something entirely different, or should have done, would no doubt have struck them as pointless or even silly. That's not, needless to say, a situation to be unequivocally commended. If we did what our ancestors do, then we'd still be presumably treating people as they did St George, who met his end by being seated astride a sharp blade with weights tied to his legs, roasted over a fire crushed on a spiked wheel, had 60 nails hammered into his head and was then sawn in half. To crown his indignities, he was later made patron of the Boy Scouts Association. (laughs) Modernity is, among other darker things, surely an exhilarating emancipation from all of that. I mean, not even the CIA saw people in half, you know. I suppose what with modern torture techniques, you do not they don't really need to. All the same, there's surely much to be said for the notion of tradition, however benighted it may be in certain respects. I mean, how could some idea, some solitary intellectual dreams up at three o'clock in the morning rival the collective wisdom of, the practically gained wisdom of humankind, what millions upon millions of men and women have found it both possible and necessary to believe over the centuries. That's not to say, of course, that what they believe is always true, just that there's almost certain to be something in it, if not perhaps quite what they think it is. The idea of authority isn't very fashionable these days. Postmodernists always think of power and authority as intrinsically negative, whereas power for me is a supremely positive word. I can't get enough of it, you know. The authority of experience, for example, the distilled authority of collective experience, distilled from the practices of, of the past. In fact, for good or bad, the past is largely what we're made of. We're constituted, would you believe it, out of something that doesn't even exist, because the past exists no more than the future does. The good news, then, is that we always have more than our own fragile resources to live off. The bad news is that if we have to get out from under the oppressive burden of the past from time to time... We can do so only by means of the few poor, compromised, contaminated instruments that the past itself has handed us. On the whole, modernity believes in negating the past rather than in conforming to it. One might even claim that it has a kind of Oedipal relationship to its ancestry, dependent upon it, of course, yet in denial about the fact In Freud's so-called family romance, the small child fantasises that its mother and father aren't really its parents at all, but it's the offspring of some much posher, grander, sexier kind of parentage altogether. But you can press that a stage further, of course, and hold the unconscious conviction that you're self-authoring, self-generated, sprung from your own head, and thus entirely autonomous and self-determining. A belief that's perhaps the key fantasy of middle-class individualism. You're sprung spontaneously from your own loins, you keep renewing that process. The denial of dependency, which I suppose is, you might say, part of the fundamental human condition, must involve a denial of parentage and therefore of the past. Instead, you and history are reborn at every moment. And in that sense, the new that so many people rave about is actually, psychoanalytically speaking, a form of repression. I mean, whatever the car manufacturers want us to believe. It's for those who can't acknowledge that they weren't self-born. The Donald Trumps of this world, in fact. It's also, ironically not only for those who repress the past and thus see themselves as self-fashioning, it's for those who can't live in the present as well. Because in market conditions, faced with intensely competitive market forces, you have, of course, to run very, very hard just to stay on the spot where you are. And before you know where you are, the present has slipped into the future and that into another future, even before you've had time to close your fist over it. It's the very opposite of the New Testament recommendation to live like the lilies of the field. There's a kind of hippie streak to the New Testament as well as a much darker one. And therefore, one of the deepest condemnations that, of contemporary capitalist civilization, I suppose, one can make is not only that it commodifies the past, but that it hollows out the present as well. We've lost the future, as it were, as well as losing the past. And that's very different from the earlier middle-class ideologues who told themselves grand narratives of progress, and science, and reason, and utopia, and transformation. The earlier history of the same mode of production is ideologically extremely different, but that's all gone. As one postmodern thinker enthusiastically remarked, the future will be much like the present, only with more options. This cult of options, I've made my choices, decisions, as though all the most important things are things that we don't really choose you know we don't choose our bodies we don't choose where we're born we don't choose who we love in certain ways so both past and present become sacrificial victims on the altar of a future which isn't really a future at all in any radically new sense and time is accordingly deadlocked and suspended which is why everybody is now interested in space The modern age is the only one I'm aware of that regards authenticity as involving a clean break with the past. Everything that happened up to 10 minutes ago is so much ancient history. I was just in Brussels airport and there was a huge sign saying, change is good. Okay, so if you... I can saw your legs off at the knees, all right? That'll be all right, wouldn't it? a ridiculous slogan. No other historical period, for example, calls itself after its up-to-dateness, the modern. What are we? Or they were the Renaissance, or whatever, the feudalists maybe, we are modern. But so were they to themselves, yes? Incidentally, the word modern, of course, is itself ancient. It comes from the Latin modernus. The modern era is the only one I know of which thinks of innovation as inherently positive. Chemical weapons are pretty new, and so is UKIP, and so is Adele, yeah? (laughs) No era has made such a fetish of originality as the modern era. Well, the modern era in a fairly extended sense, because it really begins with Romanticism, the fetishism of origins. Yet, claims to originality are always very perilous to make. You know, if a speaker points out that the paperclip was invented by a Norwegian around 1900 which I think is the case. Somebody at the back of the hall will always stand up to say that one's just been discovered in an Etruscan tomb. Nothing could be absolutely original since we'd have no means of identifying it. How could we possibly identify something that was utterly discontinuous with our language, our categories, our practical experience and so on? Nothing is absolutely original in at least this sense that everything is woven out of the pre-existent. Everything has raw materials. Everything comes after and out of something else. The only exception to this, of course, being for Christianity, the universe itself, which according to the doctrine of creation is supposed to have been made by God ex nihilo, out of nothing, and as such, it's not necessary at all. By and large, scientists are unsettled by things that don't seem to have any point, even though Almost all the most valuable things fall into exactly that category. Art, for example. Love. Most forms of laughter. Carrot cake. (laughs) Um, Even in revolutionary conditions, there's more continuity than discontinuity in history. People still have to pull on their jeans and brush their teeth, even while power is being openly contested in the streets. During the Dublin Rising of 1916, the Shelbourne Hotel, still one of the poshest in the city, went on serving high tea, and the Irish Times went on being published while the revolution was happening literally around the corner. Absolute innovation is impossible for another, I think, interesting reason, too. Take one of the most extraordinary developments in the whole of 20th century culture, the whole series of revolutionary artistic avant gardes from the futurists and constructivists, the daddyists, surrealists, situationists, who followed hard on each other's heels in a Europe torn by political and military upheaval, and whose dream, whose avant-gardist dream, was to wipe the historical slate clean and create an absolutely pure space in which they could start afresh, in which they could start from nothing. Yet, of course, to do that is itself a historical act, requires a lot of historical technique and knowledge and technology. So, uh, in a sense, it's sort of self-defeating. It simply adds to the history that you're seeking to abolish. It's the same, incidentally, with declarations of the end of history, which have been happening with tedious frequency over late modernity. Hegel, for example, believed in his winningly modest way that history had now culminated inside his own head. But again, that was a very rash claim to make because all it did was engender a whole series of responses from Kierkegaard and Marx and Nietzsche and all kinds of posh people who who set out to refute it. So again, in the act of trying to abolish history or bring it to a close, arrest it, you simply spawn yet more of the stuff. Declaring the end of history in the 1990s, as some thinkers did, was, among other things, I think, a sign of the triumphalist mood of the West after the Cold War, after it had, in effect, its victory in the Cold War, which in turn led the West to trample roughshod over other parts of the globe, which then in turn unleashed a backlash in the form of radical Islam, which then in turn meant... That history hadn't ended, after all, but the very act of announcing it over was part of opening it up again. An entirely grand new narrative, the war between capitalism and a certain reading of Islam, uh, had now been unleashed. Once more, the attempt to slam the brakes on history to declare something absolutely new proved utterly self-defeating. The past will always outdo the present because there's so much more of it. Think of the tragic drama of Henrik Ibsen, in which just as some character struggling for his or her emancipation reaches out to grasp the future, the dead weight of a guilt-ridden past comes rumbling in like an avalanche to bury him or her without trace, the typical Ibsenite tragic moment. If we need to repress the past, it's largely because it's unpleasant. Uh, That's true, for example, of the political realm. For example, most nations have their origins in invasion, occupation, revolution, extermination and the like. Almost all political origins are a matter of original sin. If a state is to flourish then... One of the things it has to do is thrust those origins deep into what you might call the political unconscious. Those unsavoury beginnings must be disavowed or denied so that, ironically, political legitimacy is, to a large extent, a matter of amnesia. The further away you get from that original sin, the further away you get from those blood-stained origins, the easier it becomes to establish your sovereignty which is largely a matter of forgetting. Legitimacy is really longevity, and that's one reason why states like Israel and Northern Ireland, which were born within or almost within living memory, are so chronically unstable. They haven't yet had time to naturalise their criminal beginnings, as we have. A whole host of thinkers... An extraordinary number of thinkers, from Pascal to David Hume to Edmund Burke to De urges not to inquire too deeply into the origins of the state, which in Freudian parlance is really akin to the primal scene, you know, uncovering the shame of the parents. Power survives by what Nietzsche calls active forgetting, by denial of the past in the name of the new. But nothing, in a sense, is more drearily familiar than the new. It's much the same with individuals as it is with political states. Only by repressing an enormous amount of what went into our making can we become the human subjects we are. Extraordinary paradox of late modernity. Repression is good for you, yes? The repression is never entirely successful, in the sense that none of us escapes entirely unscathed from that primordial catastrophe known as infancy. We just have to come to terms with it as best we can, though the human psyche will remain scarred forever. Sexuality, incidentally for psychoanalysis, is where we're most infantile, not where we're most mature. There is no concept of maturity in Freud. Uh, Adults are just those who know that they're never going to grow up, as opposed to children who fondly imagine that one day they will. But we know better than that. The neurotic, according to Freud, is someone afflicted by reminiscences, he says, which is true, of course, of all of us. We're all, in that sense, the neurotic animal. But in some cases, we can actually fall ill of unstaunchable desire and when we need some help to bind this psychic wound. Psychoanalytically speaking... That help consists mostly in remembrance, which is a painful process. We must stare the gorgon's head of the past full in the eyes if we're to have the chance of a decent future. We must turn backwards in order to look forwards, which is the reverse of the triumphalistic doctrines of progress and so on. We have in the end to accept the past. We can't do anything else. We can't change it. as we have to accept death, which isn't to say welcome it or think it's a great thing, just to accept it. Death can't be evaded and the past can't be changed, except, in fact, for the great German thinker Walter Benjamin, who met his own death at the hands of the Nazis. We tend to think, don't we, of the past as fixed and dead and of the present as somehow open, uncertain, and the future. Benjamin didn't think that. For him, the past was open-ended, was provisional, was indeterminate, And it would be made determinate by what we might do in the present and the future. So, for example, it's up to us, in Benjamin's eyes, to ensure that a Stone Age child didn't belong to a species that ended up exterminating itself. Because that would be part of the truth of that child, even if it can't, of course, know that. As Benjamin says, it's not dreams of liberated grandchildren that stir men and women to revolt, it's... Memories of Oppressed Ancestors. It is the past for him which, read in a certain way, is revolutionary, and as his colleague Theodore Adorno remarked, with Freud in mind in particular, I think, those thinkers who seek to give us the sober, unvarnished truth are much more service to humanity than the wide-eyed Utopianists, let me just end, and I really will end here by saying this: Benjamin there is in a great tradition of Hebraic prophecy. The prophet is not somebody who tries to read the future. The prophet is not a clairvoyant. The prophet is just somebody who warns you that unless you change your ways, there ain 't going to be a future, or at least it 's going to be highly unpleasant. He or she reads the Times, not the tea leaves i 'll just end with one sentence, so it is that benjamin 's famous angel of history faces not forwards into the future but backwards, gazing with horror on the mounting pile of garbage that some people like to call human history and being blown backwards into the future as he does so by the wind's release from paradise which had become caught up in his wings. Thank you very much.
1: Discover more about tradition, ideology, Marxism and culture at wwwroutledgecom forward slash philosophy. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. Let us know what you thought by tweeting at IAI underscore TV with the hashtag philosophy for our times. Also, before you go, just a quick note that there won't be a podcast out next week because we're taking a small break for Christmas. Have a lovely festive season, though, and we'll be back in the new year with more philosophy for our times. Fingers crossed for 2018, I eh?